This is a Triple J podcast. Hack. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. This is the Hack Podcast. And I'm asking if you've ever been doxxed online. Or have you done it yourself? You've doxxed someone, published their personal information, details of them without their consent. Maybe their address, where they work. Well, the government's saying it's going to make it a crime in Australia. It sounds like a good way to protect social media users, so why then are some experts worried? We're going to be unpacking this issue later, get right into doxing what it is, who does it, why some people think making it a crime isn't necessarily going to eliminate a big problem. Also, why are we still behind on so many targets to address Indigenous disadvantage in Australia? We're going to get the latest Closing the Gap update in a bit. But first, hack. We are extremely worried about the fate of civilians in Rafa. On Triple J. If you've been following what's happening in Gaza over the past few days, you might have been hearing a lot about the city of Rafa. It's home to more than a million people who are taking refuge there, more than half the population of the Gaza Strip. Now, Rafa has come under heavy Israeli airstrikes in recent days. And Israel's Prime Minister has ordered the military to get a plan together to evacuate the city and to destroy Hamas battalions. But that's raising a lot of concern among humanitarian groups, the international community, even the United States, which is one of Israel's key allies. So what could a ground invasion mean for the people sheltering in Rafah? Well, Ariana Lachente has been looking into it. That's the hospital. That's the hospital. That's the hospital. Oh my God! Are you guys hearing that? People now are rushing to the side just to see if, if there are people. I guess we're, we're looking at the, a tragedy right now. It's been a deadly 48 hours in the southern Gaza city of Rafah which has been bombarded by Israeli airstrikes that local health authorities say have killed at least 67 people, including children. There are reports that mosques, several houses and a building near the city's Kuwait hospital were all hit by the strikes. Youssef Hamash fled to Rafah with his family. He reckons he's just lived through one of the most terrifying nights of his life. We lost that sense of safety that we had for a couple of weeks in Rafah. When we woke up at the mid- after the middle of the night on the huge bombardment all over across Rafah. This Palestinian girl also suffered injuries in the strikes overnight. We were at home when the airstrikes were ongoing. I told my mother that I wanted to use the bathroom as she was awake. Suddenly, all of the walls of the bathroom and all the water containers above it collapsed on me. The strikes were carried out during an operation by Israel to rescue two hostages who are being held by Hamas, two men in their 60s and 70s who have now been reunited with their families. One thing we're not going to do is we're not going to let Hamas emerge victorious. That's Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. He's ordered the army to set its sights on Rafah with a plan for evacuating the population and destroying Hamas battalions. You've directed the Israeli Defense Forces to evacuate uh, Rafah in advance of this ground invasion. Where are these people supposed to go? Rafah is normally home to about 300,000 people. But the war in Gaza, which has now been raging for more than four months, means more than 1.4 million people are now crammed into the city, with many sheltering in makeshift tents along the Egyptian border. Aid groups say it's not possible to evacuate everyone from Rafah. 
And Stefan Dujaric, spokesperson for the United Nations Secretary General, has warned of humanitarian catastrophe. The unprecedented density of Rafah's population make it nearly impossible to protect civilians uh, in the event of ground attacks. Doctors and aid workers are already struggling to supply basic aid and stop disease from spreading. Jan Egeland, Secretary General of the Norwegian Refugee Council, says the situation would become a bloodbath if Israel expands its operations into Rafah. He says no war can be allowed in a gigantic refugee camp. While the United States has been a key ally and military backer of Israel, this time it's warning against more strikes in the Rafah offensive. John Kirby is the U.S. National Security Council spokesman. Military operations right now would be a disaster for those people, and it's not something that we would support. The war in Gaza started on October 7 last year, when Hamas gunmen killed 1,200 people in southern Israel and took 250 people hostage. Since then, Palestinian officials say 28,000 people have been killed, while Israel says about 100 hostages remain in Hamas captivity after dozens were freed during a ceasefire in November. US President Joe Biden has just met with King Abdullah of Jordan to discuss a hostage deal and pause to the fighting. The United States is working on a hostage deal between Israel and Hamas, which would bring an immediate and sustained period of calm to Gaza for at least six weeks. Meanwhile, a Dutch court has ordered the government to suspend the export of fighter jet parts used by Israel. The judge has said there's a risk it's being used in serious violations of international humanitarian law. Back home, Australia's Foreign Minister Penny Wong is also expressing deep concern about an Israeli incursion into Rafah. Australia would say is Israel must now exercise special care in relation to these civilians, and not doing so would have devastating consequences. And while the threat of an offensive in Rafah looms, the trauma of war is already having a lifelong impact on children. My children understand the difference between a missile and a tank ship, the drones and the warplane. Our cycle of life is one day. If we survive it, then we are lucky to live the next one. Rafah was the final destination. There is no other options for us. This is Hack on Triple J. Ariana Lucente with that update. I want to hear more about what is happening on the ground here, how aid groups have been getting on. Jennifer Tierney is the Executive Director of MSF Australia, which is Doctors Without Borders, and she is with us. G'day, Jennifer. Thank you very much for making the time to come on Hack. Hi, Dave. These strikes on Rafa, we've just been hearing about the impact on civilians. What's your reaction to seeing what's been happening over the past few days? I mean, I'm, I'm horrified on top of already being horrified over the last four months about the attacks on civilians and healthcare in Gaza. I mean, over the past few months, most of the population has actually been moved into Rafa and the area around Rafa. So we're talking about more than a million people who are now under siege after being told to go to a particular place. They're already going through unimaginable suffering. Um, you know, as we know, tens of thousands of people have died. Some people's entire families have been killed by Israel. They are dealing with incredibly complex trauma, wounds, and with very little medical care available to them on the ground. You know, healthcare is just being absolutely decimated. We're here getting reports now of attacks on Nasser Hospital and, and injuries, sniper injuries to medical staff there. 
it's just absolutely relentless and exhausting. I wanted to ask you about the aid situation because when we did speak to you a few months ago, it was at a time where there was pretty much no aid getting in, uh, very difficult for people on the ground, including doctors working with MSF. What is the situation like now? Like, What are doctors telling you about supplies and what they're able to get access to? I mean, when we spoke a few months ago, we were able to operate on some level through our 300 locally hired team members throughout the Strip. If you look at a map of the Strip now, you see that two-thirds of it are basically inaccessible for healthcare. So it's just gotten worse. We have constant evacuation orders. You know, our teams on the ground are doing their best to try to find safe places to work in. But if you heard about You know, a sniper hitting a nurse while she was in a surgical ward a few days ago. You hear about the sniper fire on Nasser Hospital. There is no hospital that is safe. And right now, there are only 15 of 36 health facilities that are open. And some of those are, frankly, barely functioning. So our team members are are gutted, devastated. They come out of Gaza saying, and these are our most experienced people, saying it is the worst situation that they've witnessed in their career. And we need a ceasefire to be ordered to able to restore some semblance of dignity. And so the doctors that you're able to get in, uh, who are they? Are there Australian doctors that are, that are able to get access on the ground? We do have Australian team members. We have very limited international team members on the ground, but we do have Australian team members, much to their, their credit and their experience. Um, we have, as I said, 300 staff who are and have been working in Palestine. They've, of course, suffered great trauma themselves, had to move their families, their homes, uh, suffered injuries, etc. And so it's very challenging to keep consistent healthcare going. But I would say that, you know, I hate to use the word hero, but the folks who continue to carry out healthcare in that type of situation are are doing a heroic thing, that is for sure. As we've heard, there have been more talks of a ceasefire in recent days. What is MSF's view on that? No, absolutely. We need a ceasefire immediately. We needed one months ago. I mean, patients right now are, you know, we have many patients who need to get out of the strip in order to be able to deal with their complex injuries People are seeing increased infections from wounds. We're seeing rising malnutrition, respiratory infections. You know, food and water shortages are increasing due to the fact that there hasn't been a ceasefire. Uh, you know, it's and and that the administrative issues that are being posed for us getting supplies into the country. And you know, we're doing our best. MSF is providing surgical support, vaccinations, mental health ser- services, but with repeated sieges on the hospitals that we're working in, it makes it very difficult to carry out any semblance of quality health care. Australia and some other countries like the United States, the UK, Switzerland, Germany paused their funding to UNRWA, which is a big UN aid agency. Uh, that's because an investigation into allegations that some staff were involved in Hamas attacks in Israel has been underway. Do you know what kind of impact that's having on the ground? I mean, half of the population in Palestine are reliant on food, water, and shelter from UNRWA. So the idea that we would cut off that lifeline is, again, another blow to humanitarianism and another blow to this population that has suffered and suffered and suffered for months. And Australia needs to stop pulling funding from the lifeline for Palestinians and stop using words like take special care 
when you're bombing civilians and be more forceful. They need to come out more strongly and use every diplomatic effort that includes everything from you know, diplomacy to finances to stop this assault on civilians. They have not done so so far. They should take this moment to do so in the face of this assault on Rafa. You mentioned the impact all of this is having on doctors themselves, not only doctors who live in Gaza, who are from Gaza, but also those members of international teams. Uh, what what have you been hearing from those who've, who've been in the situation and have come out? What are they saying about the stresses that have been involved and whether, you know, whether they're able to continue with their work? I mean, they, they and MSF in general are dedicated to supporting our patients because we know that we are one of the last remaining opportunities to support people in Palestine. However, what they're coming out with is a devastating picture. I mean, children, when we talk about mental health services, you're talking about an entire population of children that has mental health trauma. You're talking about, you know, an entire population that needs their entire infrastructure rebuilt. You're talking about tens of thousands of people who have family dead, who have suffered injuries. You're talking about children who have no remaining family members to take care of them. I mean, there are new medical terms being invented in Gaza to paint the bleak picture of what's happening there. And, you know, frankly, I feel like we've been saying this for months, that this was going to happen. And this has happened. And we're still hand-wringing here in Australia. Well, we appreciate your time explaining all of that to us. Jennifer Tierney, Executive Director of MSF Australia, thank you very much for coming on Hack. Thank you for having us. Hack, we want to smash that gap. We don't want to just close it, we want to smash it. On Triple J. There's a massive health and life expectancy gap between Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and the rest of Australia. We know that. And for decades, governments have been trying to figure out how to best deal with it. And every year we get this update on closing the gap targets that the government's trying to reach. And every year, the news is pretty disappointing. Today was no different. Only four out of 19 closing the gap targets are on track to be met. Another four targets are actually going backwards. Now, today, the Prime Minister made his annual Closing the Gap statement, and it's the first one that the government's made since the voice referendum last year. And he announced some new plans to help address Indigenous disadvantage. So what are they? Well, Shalala Madora has been looking into it. Hundreds of people gathered in Parliament's Great Hall this morning to mark the 16th anniversary of Kevin Rudd's national apology. Among them, scores of survivors of the stolen generations, including Yorta Yorta man Ian Ham. The entire apology, and particularly the words, we say sorry, are probably the most significant to ever be spoken in this building by anyone. For Ian and many First Nations people, this anniversary comes in the shadow of the failed voice to parliament referendum, which was voted down last year. It reminds me then even, the un- even in the uncertainty of the place of my people in post-referendum Australia, hope lives. I look around this room and I see other stolen children and it reminds me that hope lives. One big thing that came out of today was a new promise by the government to work harder to close the gap. 
The gap refers to a big difference in health and life expectancy between Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and the non-Indigenous population. And today, the government's revealed that so far, the results haven't been great. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese outlined some of them in Parliament. 16 years after the apology, only 11 out of 19 socio-economic outcomes for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples are improving. Just four are on track to meet their targets. It gets worse. What should give us pause is that outcomes have worsened for four critical targets. Children's early development, rates of children in out-of-home care, rates of adult imprisonment, and tragically suicide. The government announced the creation of a new National Commissioner for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children, a role Minister for Indigenous Australians, Linda Burney, hoped would help in meeting some of the targets. This, of course, is in response to the, uh, uh, the growing numbers of Aboriginal children in care and the growing numbers of Aboriginal young people in juvenile justice settings. The government also announced it would scrap the coalition's remote jobs program. So it was basically racially discriminatory um, and it paid welfare in, instead of wages. Associate Dean of Indigenous Leadership of the UTS Business School, Professor Noreen Young, said the government's plan to create 3,000 remote jobs was made in consultation with First Nations communities. Programs that community has formulated and will oversee. She says that gives communities the ability to dictate what jobs they need to fill. I would think we'd be looking at um, the care industry, the childcare industry. Opposition leader Peter Dutton says he wants to know more about how the new jobs program will be funded. He's also repeating his calls for a massive audit of spending on Indigenous programs. Billions of dollars, Mr Speaker, over many decades have not translated into the outcomes that Indigenous Australians deserve. Only more bureaucracy and more bottlenecks which prevent the money going where it's needed most. Green Senator Dorinda Cox, the first Aboriginal woman to represent WA in the Senate, says truth-telling and a process of signing agreements or treaties, known as Makarata, must be top of the agenda. It is now time for the government to pick themselves up and walk into the next chapter of the Uluru Statement from the Heart. This is Hack on Triple J. Shalala Madora with that update. And, yeah, we'll keep you across this new National Commissioner for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children and young people. A very interesting announcement. We'll see what happens there. Hack. No Australian should be targeted because of their race or because of their religion. On Triple J. Do you know much about doxing? It's when someone posts private information about a person or people online maliciously. And I was asking before if it's ever happened to you, and people are messaging in saying, yes, it has. Someone on the text line says, a girl of the same name as me posted a racist video on January 26 last year. I then faced days of abuse and online threats to me and my family. Even had to talk to my HR department as they'd published where I'd worked on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. So we've got examples coming through of people who've been doxxed in the past. Now, doxing is in the headlines at the moment after the private chat of a WhatsApp group of hundreds of Jewish Australians was published online. 
Now, Jewish groups, the Prime Minister, opposition leader, other politicians have condemned this. They say the people in the group were targeted because they're Jewish and it led to harassment and death threats. But advocates who share the details have defended it. They say the messages were in the public interest because it showed coordinated efforts to silence Palestinian activists and their allies. And they deny that this is an example of doxing. The reason all of this is so newsworthy at the moment is because the government's now saying it's going to make doxing a crime. So what would that mean? How would it work? Simon Copland is an honorary fellow at ANU and he's studied extremists online, knows a lot about doxing. He's with us now. G'day, Simon. Thanks for coming on Hack. I gave a bit of a rundown, but can you explain in your terms what doxing is? So doxing is exactly kind of how you described it already. It's the the releasing of public information online, um, normally for malicious intent, uh, and it's often done in a way to uh, promote harassment of the person whose details have been released online. Is there a way of doxing without being malicious? I I think where this can get tricky is uh, when things are done for political intent. Uh, So a really good example of this uh, that's outside of Australia was following the Charlottesville riots during the Trump presidency, the the ones, the far-right extremist riots there. Lots of people who were opposing the fascists who were participating in those riots, they took, uh, there was lots of images, uh, and they um, went and found out who was participating in these actions and released their names and details. And they were doing so to expose people who were participating in a, in a sort of fascist white supremacist street march. So now that technically could be considered doxing, but there's a, there's a huge political intent behind it. A lot of people claimed that they were doing so because they felt that people had the right to know that there were white supremacists who were willing to participate in such actions in their streets and in their communities. And so I think a lot of doxing can happen in a political way and can happen for political reasons, and it's where it becomes a lot more, a lot more murky. I wonder, like the group Anonymous, which is well known for releasing information online, whether that is considered doxing as well. Yeah, often what the group Anonymous have done is has been considered doxing and uh, and that uh, often falls, I think, more into the malicious side. Um, at times there have been um, actions where they have released people's onlo- um, details online for the clear reason of harassment uh, and it's often been less political it's been because people have decided they don't like somebody or things like that and that's where it can often cross that boundary uh, where it becomes about, about harassment and a targeted uh, campaign of harassment. So it sounds like the, the definition of it can be a bit tricky as well and uh, deciding what is doxing and what isn't. So I wonder what you make of this new law that the government's announced. Well, clearly we haven't seen the law as of yet um, and exactly what they're planning to ban, but I'm I'm very cautious of it for a couple of reasons. Um, First of all, as you've just said, we don't really know what doxing is in many ways, um, and in particular when it comes to um, what does it mean to release something for malicious intent. That is up for debate. And the, the example that has been used here, the, the, the sort of impetus behind this sort of this release of this WhatsApp chat is a really good example where there is a clear debate that's happening here about whether that was in the public interest and whether it's actually doxing at all. Because what's happened is people's names have been released, but people's a lot of the contact details uh, has been claimed to have been scrubbed. So people can't necessarily call or go to the people's places to harass them. So was, there's a clear argument there. Uh, and debate to be had about whether that's actually a political action uh, and 
do we want to be banning those kinds of political actions? I, I don't think we should be going down that path. The second issue with such a law is that it's really, really hard to enforce. And then who are you also punishing? Are you punishing the person who releases it in the first instance? Or are you then also punishing people who retweet it or share it or participate in it or comment on it? That's not very clear either. So I think there's a lot of problems with with legislation to ban doxing. Right, okay. It does sound like the policing is going to be a real challenge. The other thing I would think is that people who may be engaging in doxing could be taking a lot of steps to hide their identity. They may not be able to be found. Yeah, exactly. And it's not just about creating an anonymous, um, you know, account on Twitter. It can be about uh, using public computers to do it. It can be about um, hiding your IP address. There's a whole range of ways. Anyone who is smart with a computer and was doing so with malicious intent, and Anonymous does this very, very well, the group Anonymous, um, it's, it's very quick and easy to hide yourself. And uh, so those that would just never become policeable. So we're creating legislation with very little purpose because it it would never be able to be enforced. This is Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with Simon Copland from ANU about doxing, what it is, uh, in, in the wake of the government announcing that it wants to make this specific online activity illegal, make it a crime. Simon, do we have any laws right now that really address this? If someone is being accused of doxing, does that fall under being harassment, for instance, online? Yeah, I would think that the the most likely way that you can address this is through harassment legislation. And harassment can be broad, but a lot of the campaigns of doxing that the government should be concerned about and claims it's concerned about would fit under harassment laws. But one of the things that we've certainly had noted is that often police agencies don't take online harassment seriously. Um, They often don't believe that it's real or that it has real impacts. Victims of online harassment are often told that it's not serious or they're told, why don't you just block that person or why don't you just shut down your accounts? Um, They're sort of fobbed off. Uh, And so we actually have a current problem in which the current legislation is not being enforced because it's not taken seriously when it uh, when it happens online. So harassment face-to-face is taken seriously, but harassment online is not so much. Uh, and actually, I think maybe one of the better ways to deal with something like this would be to look at how we can figure out ways uh, to ensure that online harassment is dealt with more seriously. Simon, what about media coverage? Is that something that's got to be considered as well? Because I have seen that the changes are going to include an exemption for public interest journalists. Journalism. I imagine that's something that we need to consider pretty carefully when bringing in a new law. Well, at the moment, we haven't really seen details of these new laws. It's something that the government has announced. And and one of the things that I'd also say about this is it really kind of shows a reactive response. So they're reacting to this release of a WhatsApp group chat. And that raises flags because it often means that when, you th- when you're responding to one incident, it often means that you're doing rushed legislation that can turn into bad policy. And you raise a really interesting question. What role would the media play in this? Could they be caught in something like this? And could honest journalism get swept up into this legislation? And that's something that we that we wouldn't want to see happen. There's really good examples, for example, of private conversations, lobbying conversations, um, internal party meetings, these kinds of things that are within the public interest. But in doing so, to release that to the public interest relies on releasing private information, who's who's at those meetings, who are in these group chats, these kinds of things. If we end up banning that, we could 
end up in a situation where journalists end up fearful about releasing these kinds of stories and, and releasing stuff within the public interest. And it's something that I would be very concerned about with such legislation. In terms of doxing itself, is it something that's really kind of got a lot more prominence in the last few years? Like, how have you seen um, awareness of it, just generally people on social media knowing what it is and, and calling it out? Yeah, well, we, we've certainly seen that, particularly as I think there's been a growing level of scepticism about the role that social media plays in our society. And we've seen that across a whole range of um, different political debates recently. And what's what previously happened is there was a lot of discussion about social media as kind of being this great force and a lot of questions were not asked um, in the first years of its introduction. And now people are coming to, to terms with the fact that there are problems associated with it. And, and I think doxing is one of those. Um, and then of course, we've seen some of these high profile campaigns. I think, you know, you mentioned the ones from Anonymous, which have really raised the profile of doxing. Um, and it's certainly something we're getting, a, I get a lot more questions about and you can, you can see it in the public debate a lot more. So I think people are aware of it. I think we need to be aware of it and it's important to do things to halt it. But legislation like this might not necessarily be the answer. Well, as you say, we don't have all the details. It will be something that we'll be all following and no doubt speaking to you more about. Simon Copland from ANU, thank you very much for joining us on Hack. Thanks for having me on. Hack on Triple J. And that is all we've got time for on the Hack podcast for now. I'll catch you next time.